Our scripture reading and text is taken from the Gospel of John, in chapter 4. We'll read the first 45 verses of that chapter. John 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mount when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. After the proclamation of God's word, we will voice our amen together by singing from hymn 73, stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 20, verse 31, the apostle writes, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it's with that purpose in mind that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to record certain encounters that people had with the Lord Jesus. One of those encounters was with a man named Nicodemus, and we can read about that in the third chapter of John. Nicodemus was one of the religious elites in Israel, an educated leader of the Jews, a Pharisee, a member of a group of that people that most people really looked up to. But in chapter 4, Jesus meets someone else, a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman even of questionable character. She, you could say, was the polar opposite of Nicodemus in regard to gender, ethnicity, and morality. Now, why is this encounter between Jesus and this woman recorded for us? Well, for one, the Holy Spirit is telling us that Jesus is the friend of sinners crossing the established boundaries of Jewish society at that time in race and in gender. But then, of course, that's what you would expect from the one who is the Savior of the world. He shows us that all people need the gospel. People like Nicodemus, who think that they're doing all right, as well as people like this Samaritan woman whose life is messy, a moral mess. Furthermore, this passage teaches us something about evangelism. We know that many people today are spiritually thirsty. They are hungry for satisfaction, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to find the living water. At the same time, we who know the living water, we often don't know how to approach people who are searching, how to talk to them. But in the Lord Jesus, we have a perfect teacher. It's wonderful to see how Jesus is at work with this Samaritan woman. So this morning, I'd like to unpack with you this dialogue Jesus has with her, and we'll see together how the Lord leads this Samaritan woman to living water. We read at the end of John chapter 4 that Jesus became the talk of the town, the talk of the town of Sychar, because many Samaritans believed in him. The people were so interested in him that they even asked him to stay for, for some days, so he stayed there for two days. How did that happen? Well, if you would have asked one of the town folk, they might have said to you, well, 
to tell you the truth, one of our more notorious citizens came to us and said, come see a man who told me everything about me, who knows everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And because this man had such a dramatic impact on her life, we wanted to know more about who this man was. So we invited him to stay. And now he has turned our lives completely upside down. That's the impact Jesus had on the town of Sychar. He became the talk of the town because he had a talk with a woman at the well of Jacob. And not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman at that. His disciples were so shocked that he was talking to this woman that when they came back from buying food in town, all they could think of saying was, Jesus, please eat your lunch. They were shocked that he was talking with a woman. This isn't normal. They didn't dare to say what they were thinking, but their faces must have shown it. Because why would he be talking to her? Rabbis don't do that. They don't even teach women. And secondly, he was talking with a Samaritan woman, and Jews will have nothing to do with Samaritans. Samaritans were considered racial and religious half-breeds by the Jews. And the Jews had no time for them. So this was an ostracized woman by gender, by ethnicity, and also because of her way of life. And we can infer that from her solo appearance at the well. Normally the women of the community did these kinds of things together early in the morning or later in the evening. But this woman comes at the sixth hour of the day, at noon. That says something about her. Either she was trying to avoid the other women of the town or they were trying to avoid her, probably both. And Jesus is alone at the well when she gets there because the disciples had gone to town to buy some sandwiches. But Jesus remained behind weary and thirsty. So here we have the human Christ congregation. He's weary and thirsty, waiting for lunch to arrive. And then the conversation begins. It just begins very naturally, doesn't it? And notice what he does. Notice how this goes. Notice what he does not do as well. Jesus doesn't start by saying, what church do you go to? Or where do you go to church? He doesn't launch into a discussion about why it's better to be a Jew than a Samaritan. But he just asks her for water. And no doubt this made a huge impact on her. Here's a Jew, a man, and he's having an ordinary conversation with a Samaritan woman, and he's asking her for a favor. You see, Jesus is showing himself to be humble. He treats this woman with respect. He accepts her as someone that he can interact with. He treats her without bias or prejudice. He's not pushy. He's not hostile. He doesn't show that he considers himself better than she. And this shocks her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? And John adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In other words, Jews don't share things with Samaritans. This woman is shocked that Jesus would even consider putting his lips on her water jug. But notice that he doesn't answer her question. Instead, he's basically telling her, if you find it surprising that I'm asking you for water... Just wait until you hear what else I have to say. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
You see, while this lady thinks that Jesus needs her for a drink of water, it's really she who needs Jesus. It's really she who needs Jesus. She is in real need. And Jesus is the fountain from which she must drink, from which her need will be supplied. There's a, a bit of an, as, a, as an aside to congregation, there's a lot of Old Testament allusion here about this water. Psalm 63, verse 1, we read, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or we can think of Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You see, the Lord Jesus is using terminology here that runs all the way through Scripture. Scriptures that find their convergence and their fulfillment in Him. And that's what He's trying to show the Samaritan woman. But her response is very puzzled. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water? And she is, of course, thinking materially. He is thinking spiritually. That's what happened when Jesus confronted Nicodemus too. Right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, well, how is that possible? Can a man enter again into his mother's womb? But Jesus responds, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, Jesus was thinking spiritually. But now this lady from Samaria, she's getting a little agitated. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Do you think that you're better than he? If this well and this water was good enough for him and his cattle, why isn't it good enough for you? And of course... Boys and girls, you know too that that living water that Jesus was talking about, that wasn't in the well, was it? And we know that Jesus is greater than Jacob. But notice once again how Jesus avoids getting into an argument. It's an important question, of course, but Jesus doesn't engage her question. He switches the conversation in verses 23 to 25. He's no, he knows that her question is important, but he also knows that's really not where the conversation needs to go, not just yet. And brothers and sisters, we ought to take note of that. We often feel guilty when we have not used opportunities to, to speak to others about Jesus Christ. We know it's necessary, but we often pass up on good opportunities. Often it's because we don't know where to start. Right? Do you confront your fellow worker with your faith? Or with his unbelief? Do you confront him every time he swears and curses? Do you just simply invite them to church? Well, let's learn from our Savior. We too need to be careful when we have conversations with people. Careful that we don't start arguments. For example, an argument about church before we talk about being reborn. It's clear from Scripture that salvation is from the Jews, and the Lord Jesus is going to get there too in this conversation. He will, but take careful note of how he does it. He doesn't come with an attitude of superiority. He doesn't present himself as being better. He doesn't tell this woman, I'm a member of God's chosen people and you should become one too. You better join us because we Jews, we've got it all right. We've got it all together. We're more obedient, therefore more acceptable in the sight of God. That's not the way to have a conversation with others about the gospel. And I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that sometimes we do make that mistake. We know the gospel. We know where it's preached. We know where we ought to worship. 
This is where we ought to be on Sunday. And we are right in believing that by God's grace, this is where He gathers the church of Christ. But we should never begin by telling people, you have to do this and you have to do that. And notice how Jesus approaches this woman. He's wise and He's gentle. And He gets her to open up. He piques her curiosity. He gets her to admit her needs instead of telling her what her needs are. In congregation, we should also consider this approach of Jesus when we speak to our own brothers and sisters in the faith. Brothers and sisters in our own community. What is your approach when you think someone in your church family is doing something they ought not to be doing? In John 3, verse 17, we read, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. See, Jesus' ministry on earth was to save sinners, not to condemn them. But isn't that often our first approach? We often think that we are performing a great service when we are pointing out other people's faults, right? Look at those people. Look at, look at what she did. Did you hear what he did? And we do that with people outside the church and inside the church. Sometimes we act as if it's our primary mission in life to tell people off, to point out fault. We even do this in our own families. Let me ask the married couples, has it ever worked, improved your marriage? Has finger-pointing ever improved your marriage? I think we all know the answer. And what about parents? Does focusing on your child's failures motivate them to live closer to God? And in this regard, this... This passage has something to say to ministers and elders and deacons as well. Of course, there is a time for teaching, there's a time for instruction, and a time even to tell people that they need to change. But the purpose of home visits, for example, is is not that you do all the talking. If you want to find out how the Word of God is working in people's lives, you have to get them to talk. You have to let the members of the family speak. We all need to let the Lord Jesus be our teacher in this regard. He is masterful in leading a conversation. He knows how to wake up this woman's longing, longing for satisfaction. Sir, give me that water. Now he's, now he's really piqued her interest and we're almost at the climax of the conversation. She's still thinking in physical terms, he in spiritual terms. And while we know that Jesus' goal is not to condemn her, it's also clear from this passage He's not going to condone her way of life. He's not just going to confirm the way of life that she has, but He's trying to get her to see her own sin, to examine herself, because that's what she needs. Obviously, if you've had five husbands and now you have a live-in boyfriend, you have problems keeping a relationship And very often a person who is not able to keep and remain in a stable relationship is someone who is short-sighted, perhaps even blind to their own weaknesses. And because of this, there was still a barrier between this, this woman and the Lord Jesus, but our Lord Jesus masterfully and gently pushes through that barrier. 
And he asks her to do something that he knows she can't do. You see, congregation, if there is a longing in her life, it's not enough that she desires this longing to be fulfilled, but she has to come to realize that she can never fulfill that longing herself, which she obviously tried to do with five different marriages. She needed to be confronted by her sin. If she is going to find a Savior or discover her need for a Savior, she needs to be confronted by her sin. You see, Jesus didn't just come to make people happy. He didn't come into this world to make people's lives happier or to fix broken dreams. But He is the Savior of sinners. And that's what we all need to understand. That's what this Samaritan woman needed to understand too. So Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. Of course, she could have gone off in a huff. She could have gotten really angry. She could have lied, said, my husband's not home. Right? That's what often happens. People try to get out of a situation when they're confronted with such kinds of questions. But this woman is honest and she admits the truth. And then what does Jesus do? Does he pounce on that confession of sin? Does he immediately admonish her, tell her to stop living that way? No. Because then he might have pushed her away. But again, he is gentle. He is lowly in heart and provides rest for troubled souls. And he knows that this woman needs rest for her troubled soul. And so he says, you're right. Now that you mention it, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. And then... Well, then, then she's in awe. This is like, wow, who is this man, really? Who is this man who asked me for a drink of water and now he's telling me about my life? And so she starts a shift in her thinking. She began by thinking this was an ordinary Jewish man, but now she thinks that he's a prophet. And then she adds something that at first glance seems to have nothing to do with the conversation. She speaks about where to worship. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Many commentaries claim that she's being evasive here, trying to get out of the question about where her husband is in her personal life. Perhaps that's true. On the other hand, perhaps she is also being stirred by her guilt. Perhaps she is asking, if I want to deal with my sin and my guilt, where should I go? And this time Jesus answers her question, but not quite the way she expected. The fact is, salvation is from the Jews. However, it is not about going to a place to seek the Messiah. It's about the Messiah coming to you. The Messiah comes to seek you. Salvation lies in discovering the fact that the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, that He came in shame to seek you. God sent His Son into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's what it means to discover that you're only, you're only comfort in life and in death. That's what it means to discover what it is to live and love God, live for God and love Him and enjoy Him forever. And that's what the Lord Jesus wanted this woman to see. It's not about worship on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. 
A time is coming, Jesus said, when discussion about this thing is, is, is irrelevant. He does point out, however, that the Samaritans are pursuing illegitimate worship. They worship what they do not know. You see, the Samaritans only followed the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The point is that the revelation of the Old Testament contains the gospel promises concerning the Messiah, and therefore salvation is from the Jews. And that revelation also contains commands about how God's people ought to worship the Lord and where. In the Old Testament, it's clear that worship centers in Jerusalem, in the temple. But a time is coming, says Jesus, when all the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the Old Testament will be irrelevant. All those externals are going to fall away. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. You see, God is a spiritual being and not physical. And true worship is similar in that it's not about the external things. It's a matter of the heart. God wants hearts that are filled with His Spirit. He wants children to worship Him according to the truth of His Word. That's what worship in spirit and truth is about. That doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus is saying that anyone can worship anywhere as long as they're genuine or sincere. As we mentioned earlier, we know the gospel. We know where it is preached. We know where we ought to worship. We know where we ought to be on Sunday morning. But that doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus doesn't gather His church anywhere else. Of course He does. And it doesn't mean either that we have anything to boast about. We have every reason to be humble. Because just become, because you come to church, that doesn't make you a Christian or a better Christian. It means that by God's grace you are coming to the place where Christ is being preached and where God's truth is most fully proclaimed. But then you are also called to put that truth into practice. There's a whole lot more to being a Christian than going to church on Sunday. God wants you to worship in spirit and in truth. He wants you to embrace and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus wanted this Samaritan woman to understand too. She needed to understand that the worship of the Father in spirit and in truth means total obedience to the Word of God. And that Word, congregation, was standing right in front of her because that Word is Christ. It's so wonderfully ironic when you read this passage. This woman says, well, when the Messiah comes and we know He's coming then he will explain all of this about worship and everything else, and then we'll, then we'll find out the truth. It reminds you of the story of the two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus on the first Easter Sunday. They were walking along with Jesus, and they say to him, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know anything about what's going on in the last couple of days? And Jesus says, Why don't you tell me what's going on? It's beautiful. Jesus is so good at this kind of thing. And what does he do then? In Luke 24, he didn't reveal himself straight out to those two men, but he gives those disciples a Bible lesson in Moses and the prophets because that's what they needed. But in this case, to this obscure and nameless Samaritan woman, he reveals himself straight out. What he conceals from others, he reveals to her. The one to whom you are speaking, I am he. 
It reminds us of who we are dealing with. Jesus is the one this woman needs. And he masterfully leads her to recognize that need. And how did he get her there? He did it, first of all, by meeting her in her own situation. He did it by breaking down the natural barriers between men and women, Jews and Samaritans. He got her to recognize her need for living water. He opened her eyes to what that meant. He broke down the barrier between her and God. And that, brothers and sisters, is what God wants us to show people as well. He wants us to live in a humble way and interact humbly with the people in our lives too. The people that we meet at work, the people that you meet at the checkout line in the grocery store. People are not naturally drawn to the worship of God. By nature, no one understands the need for living water. No one seeks God, writes Paul in Romans 3. And so it's very difficult for people to walk into a church building they've never been to before. And they certainly will never dare come to a church where they think that people have a superior attitude or where it looks as if everyone has their lives all sorted out. Strangers will never dare come in unless they know they will come into a place where they're not just automatically condemned or looked down upon. And so we have to learn to turn them to Jesus. We need to show them Jesus will be there for them. Show them Jesus is able to uncover and fulfill their needs and do this with grace and kindness and humility. We have to walk in humility with those around us. Show them the Lord Jesus in a natural and a loving way without being condescending, without having a know-it-all attitude. Show them the love of Jesus and show them that that love flows out of your heart too. Out of your thankful heart. Thankful that God has forgiven your sins too. Because we're not better than anyone else. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat together really. The only thing that we can say in regard to this, we are sinners saved by grace. Undeserved. Unmerited grace. Salvation Congregation is from God alone. He is the one who quenches our thirst with living water. He is the one who makes you alive in Christ. Without that living water, you and I would be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so shouldn't that make us humble and thankful? And shouldn't that motivate also us, all of us, to tell this old, old story, which is also a new story? Amen.